0: What's hot in the strip clubs? Your hosts, the 2016 and 2017 recipients of the Exotic Dancer Publications DJ of the Year Award, Danny Myers and Elon Fong.
1: Welcome to Behind the Curtain, a What's Hot in the Strip Clubs podcast on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Elon Fong. Welcome to Behind the Curtain. Uh, Behind the Curtain is a show that uh, we're trying to peel the curtain back, as it were, and take you behind the fantasy of the strip club industry, kind of show you what a great legitimate business it can be and some of the great operators, and more importantly, some of the unique personalities with unique skill sets and amazing talents uh, that we would like to expose to the bigger world. So this show, of course, is one of my favorites. I get to have great conversations with really interesting people. Um, Before I get into that, all the what's hot podcasts can be found on all major streaming platforms or you can go to our website what's hot I-T-S-E.com. all right time to talk about today's guest now i met today's guest uh i believe around 2014 um his name is willard barth some of you may know that name some of you may not he's a fascinating individual uh former musician uh the picks are priceless of his music musician days i don't know if we'll get to share that or not but uh he was a dj He's also a peak performance coach and business advisor, a best-selling author of the book The Anatomy of Transformation, which you can still get, I believe, on Amazon and other things. He'll let you know about that in just a moment. He speaks on motivation, leadership, uh, money, and financial tips, which we're going to get into today as well. And I'm talking about the one and only Willard Barth. Willard, welcome to the show. Thank Thank you, sir. sir. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, man. I'm excited to have you on. Uh, You've done a lot of great stuff for people in the industry and outside the industry, um, and for me personally. I wanted to share a story before we really, really get into your side of things. Uh, back in at the Adult Nightclub Expo 2014, my first time going, my first time being involved in Panda. I just uh, joined Panda which for our listeners who haven't heard before are is professional adult nightclub DJ association. It's a group of strip club DJs over 1300 members around the country. And even in Mexico, I believe in Canada and the UK. So we're, we're, we're growing forever more, but I went to the expo to network and meet these guys. And I, I wanted to meet the board members. I think Willard was a board member at that time, yeah. but uh, you know, I met all these guys I just met online in person. So I kind of had looking up to them and we really excited. Right. And, they were super busy as everyone is around expo there's all these panels there's all these parties all these events you're doing contests so they were really busy and i was having trouble i had all these ideas i was excited i wanted to share with them but what we could do for strip club djs and for djs and i just couldn't lasso them in to talk to me or take me seriously right they they would kind of give me the "Uh uh-huh uh-huh yeah cool okay yeah sure and then you know go about their business why lassoed in willard at a pool party and i said willard I'm sorry to bother you, but just give me like 15, 20 minutes. That's all I'm asking. I just have these ideas I want to drop on you. And, and he said, okay, sure. And he, he said, I, give me about 10 minutes. Let me handle this. I'll be right back. And then we'll have a conversation. Sure enough, true to his word, integrity is a big thing with both me and you. He came over and said, Elon, nice to meet you again. I'm Willard, blah, 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 Please tell me your ideas. And I did. And I shared them and he listened intently. Uh, he was a great listener. And then boom, he said, those are some really great ideas some really fascinating ideas I said, well, could you like bring that up to the president and vice president and let them know that I actually have some quality ideas? Cause they don't seem like they're in a good space to listen and, and take me seriously. And Willard must've, <laughs> because the next time I spoke to them, uh, they definitely were interested in what I had to say. And from that point on, um, I, I developed a good relationship with those guys ended up becoming a board member after Willard left. I think I was one of the reasons they asked me to join the board after Willard left. Um, and sort of took his place and I joined soon after Danny Myers did and so on and so forth and from all of that came a lot of what my life has been for the last six seven years from being on the board to um, winning DJ of the year to starting all these initiatives for Panda uh, and for other stuff and it just opened so many doors for me for my career um, as a billboard reporting DJ and uh, DJ Times reporter and a music promoter all sorts of stuff so I honestly, I can see the beginning right there, that conversation, truly. So thank you, Willard.
2: My absolute pleasure, man. That's awesome. Thank you for thank you for sharing that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't think I've ever shared that with you. So
2: <laughs> oh, that's very cool.
1: Yes, 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 yes. Okay. So Willard, as I mentioned, uh, is a former DJ and musician. Uh, he might still play for his own personal enjoyment. I'm sure music never really leaves people. And we'll get into some music in a little bit. But um, tell me how you started in the oh so he's got a guitar he's holding up a guitar He's right there so he's still jams that's awesome yes um how did you get involved in the strip club industry what did that what did that look like for you how did that begin
2: well my my introduction to the strip club industry was 19 years old first job out of college um i worked for a company where we were basically street hustlers mm-hmm. it was a nationwide company based out of atlanta But they had these offices all over the place where they would actually look for and recruit people who were college age, you know, younger people, basically advertising, you know, a management position, make 500 bucks a week, which back in 1983, 84, 500 bucks a week was a nice little chunk. Yeah, great money. Working for that company, they would load us up in the morning with merchandise. It would be housewares, electronics, you know, different types Mm -hmm. of stuff. And Mm -hmm. then we would go out and basically be street hustlers. And when we came back at the end of the day, we'd settle up for what we had sold. Well, the guy who was training me was like, look, we're going to work smarter, not harder. So rather than going out and busting our tails for eight hours, we're going to wait until about four or five o'clock in the afternoon. And we're going to go to, at that time, he referred to them as go-go bars because they were just bikini bars. He goes, the girls make a ton of money the guys want to impress them and the guys also want to get out of trouble with their wives and girlfriends when they actually get home late so we go
3: out,
2: and my introduction to the clubs was from a business mindset we would go in and in 2 hours we would sell more than what it took everybody else on our team all day to do so wow. that was my introduction to the strip clubs it was from a business mindset not from not from a, a party mindset
1: That's an intro. Yeah. That's a different unique way. I feel like to enter the industry. Most of us kind of just uh, fall into it, to be honest, in a different way, more on the party scene or meeting through a girl or like I was working as a bar back and just a normal nightclub, a live rock music venue in Tempe, Arizona. And I knew a bunch of dancers and uh, eventually the management uh, of the strip club would come to the club I was working at. And they said, Hey, do you want a bar back at our club? You'll probably make more money. I'm like, let's go (laughs) more money. I'm in, you know what I mean? So that started my 25 year career in the strip clubs. Um, so, what part of the country was that? Was that South Florida? Was that like Philly? That was I think?
2: Actually, it was actually in Baltimore.
1: Baltimore. Okay. Okay. So, like the mid Atlantic region. Um, yeah. And then did you ever end up going to other markets and working in some of the bigger markets?
2: Well, so that was 1984. Okay. I got reintroduced to the, the strip club industry in 1992. Because I was pursuing my career as a musician. I Mm -hmm. got interest from a publisher and a major manager. And they wanted me closer to New York to see how I would develop. Well, the financial impact of moving from rural Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. I mean, I lived in Baltimore, but that wasn't anything overhead-wise compared to living just outside of New York City. Hell no. (laughs) And it, it basically derailed me. So I went back to doing some of what i had done with you know going into the clubs to sell jewelry to Mm -hmm. to the girls
0: hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds our family now has three pairs of raycon earbuds around the house and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price and yes she loves them now if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of raycons Go to PantheonPodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win.
1: And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package.
0: And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S.
2: But by 1992, the financial scope in even strip clubs had changed so much. And what ended up happening was because I was coming around, uh, one of the club owners knew that I had a background in music just in our conversations and he had fired his DJ (laughs) and goes, look, I know that you're struggling for money. I know that uh, you got a background in music. I can give you two shifts a week, Friday and Saturday nights, $25 a shift, no mandatory tip out. Right. So, you know, it was, it was an opportunity to make money doing something I enjoyed music based. Mm -hmm financially it wasn't any type of windfall. I mean, you know, a good night I walk out with 50 bucks, right. But, but that was my reintroduction to the industry. Right. Now when you ask about moving to bigger markets within three years, I think it was of starting in that club in central New Jersey, I was working in New York city on Broadway at one of the top clubs in New York.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah. That's the major league, especially in the nineties. I think the major leagues were sort of New York, yeah. South Florida, Texas, and maybe Vegas. Right. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that, that's awesome. That's awesome. Now, um, throughout your career, I know you, you've definitely overcome some big hurdles in your life. Uh, mm-hmm. some, some stuff I wanted to touch on because in our industry, there are definitely a lot of, uh, pitfalls, let's say, you know, you've got yeah. the money, you've got the alcohol, there's definitely drugs available, not through the clubs, but just in, in the people, the peripheral people around them. Uh, sex is an issue, you know, definitely, uh, an item you have lots of, you're in a sexually charged atmosphere, even though the industry, I don't consider it, you know, sexual, it's sensual. It's supposed to be sensual, not sexual. There's a, there's a distinction for me, but, um, you know, so all those pitfalls are stuff that many people, um, give into their vices on. And to be honest, in my experience, and even myself, most people in the industry are end up in this end up in the industry be, because of maybe some unknown issues they had that lead them there uh, i think that's a very common thread with most of the people i've talked to i'll share you know myself even something as little being, ha- I'm half Chinese and half Austrian. And I always wanted growing up in the eighties, you know, watching MTV and pop culture, I wanted the all American dream, you know, playing catch with my dad and having barbecues and drinking beers and hanging out with the hot cheerleaders. Right. And so I even dropped out of my AP courses in high school to be closer to be able to be, be in class with the popular girls, the pretty girls. Right. Yeah. Ridiculous. And then look up where my career ended up. Right. And so that was all part of a feeling of not feeling like part of the American experience. You know, now yeah. older, I totally appreciate the life I had with my family and the international people we had around at all times and the the different upbringing I had. But at the time, it's definitely what I, you know, when I was looking all around me is what I wanted. So yeah. maybe share some of the things you've overcome uh, that led you to where you are now and let you know to leave the industry and and then also. A two-part question, I guess, is tie in maybe some of the lessons you learned in the industry that applied and skill sets you were able to apply to your new endeavors.
2: A lot of different directions I can go on that one. So I mean, you you know me bit personally. So you you're wanting me to talk about some of the childhood stuff that that went on and formed not just my DJ life, but what I do in the peak performance and business consulting now. Is that is that what you're asking? Yeah. Just so I'm yeah. clear.
1: So on, okay. on the positive side, yes, but also some of the things you had to overcome. Um, Yeah. 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 So, you know, physically and then uh, with some temptation and addiction stuff, too.
2: Gotcha. So lost my leg when I was eight years old to bone cancer. Wow. Um, That put me on two very diverse paths. One, I became this mega achiever that, you know, I, I had this belief that if there was anything that I would even think that somebody would tell me I couldn't do, I had to prove them wrong. So I started making my living as a professional musician at 15 years old. I was the first licensed amputee motorcyclist in Pennsylvania.
1: Wow.
3: I
2: I lettered in junior high school wrestling. I lettered in high school football. And I started my first business when I was 19 years old.
1: Yeah. Overachieve a little bit. Yeah, I could see that. Uh And and mind you, I don't know if you caught that, but he said he had his leg amputated due to bone cancer at age eight. Yeah. So pause and think about that for a second. Like, wow. (laughs) okay continue sorry
2: <laughs> well and that, that's the next part was because i only had an eight-year-old's perception of why i lost my leg mm-hmm. um i i started thinking there must be something wrong with me you know i mean ah. grew up in a religious family so i'm like all right god's punishing me for something i did something wrong i must wow. be the spawn of satan whatever the <laughs> so i i was angry i mm. had extremely low self-esteem, self-worth, you know, thinking, you know, like you're talking about the one in the life with the the cheerleaders and everything else who was ever going to love a, 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 mutant type of deal. Wow. Yes. So um, externally, everybody thought that I was doing great because of all the things I was achieving, but internally I was a basket case. Got it. 13 years old. I had been introduced to alcohol before I was 13, but the first time that I remember getting drunk mm-hmm. was, 13 years old wow and that was where all of the monkey chatter in my head stopped when I got very wasted Mm -hmm. and I finally felt like I was equal to or in some ways I don't want to say better than but I had a talent or a skill because I was 13 Mm -hmm. this this first time I'm getting drunk I'm 13 and I'm drinking older kids under the table they're (laughs) passing out and i'm still hammering things yeah
1: and that that's definitely a a male thing challenging you know i can drink you under the table i'm a heavyweight drinker (laughs) exactly yep yep
2: so that started me on the path that the same way that i overachieved in the the good things (laughs) i started overachieving that oh boy <laughs> not not only did i was i the first licensed amateur motorcyclist in pennsylvania but within a couple of years i had to be riding with a biker gang oh wow <laughs> and i was i was so the the ages on this may confuse people i was illegally riding street bikes before i ever had a license okay okay because, because my cousin was the chief of police in the in the little hamlet that i grew up in Okay. So I started riding street bikes legally, illegally at 15. Wow! By the time I was 17, I was riding with the biker gang and I was going into every bar in the area because whenever <laughs> 17, 18 guys walk in with leathers, you know, yeah. they don't check IDs.
3: exactly. <laughs>
2: so um, what was just hammering it, doing all that stuff. And, you know, you talk about the, 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 tenor, arr, 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 you know, that thing of having to be the best, right. In my deluded mind, I was just becoming a better, 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 and better drinker than everybody else that I hung out sure. with. Sure, makes sense. I left, my, I left my childhood friends behind because they couldn't keep up with me. Right. I ended up leaving the biker gang behind because it couldn't keep up with me.
1: Damn.
2: I, <laughs> I ended up at eighteen years old, senior year in high school, being kind of like a hanger on at one of the local fraternity houses because it was a college town. I was like their mascot. I was the, you know, the, the kid that they would point to is like, look at the way that kid can do a beer bong and all these other, you know, other things. Right. So, um, 19 years old, I had my first business 19 years old. I had my first drunk driving arrest. Oh boy. And within one year I was arrested a total of five times for driving under the influence of alcohol.
1: Holy shnikes. Now, 1984, It was different then, for sure.
2: Very different. Computer systems were not interconnected. Right. So the first four times I was arrested, it was treated as a first (laughs) offense. So I got like just a little. (laughs) The fifth one was almost a year to the day Uh from when I got the first one. And all the other ones were on my record at that point. Right. So I was facing five to eight years in jail.
1: Wow. Wait. So you had five Deweys in one year. In one year, yes. Holy crap. Okay. I'm sorry. an
2: overachiever, dude. It's yeah. just crazy. <laughs> You know, when you go, you go hard, Willard Barth. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I was facing five to eight years, mm-hmm. and I ended up doing a total of 12 months. Um, I remember the date that I got out of my last jail because I had to bounce around to different jails to serve the sentences where I had all the DUIs at. It was okay. August 8th of 1988. So 8-8-88. Okay. And... Being the great overachiever that I am and was, I had to go out and get one more DUI a year later. <laughs> oh, I
1: thought you were going somewhere else. I'm like, oh, here's the, here's the turn. Nope, yep. no DUI.
2: <laughs> Got a fixed yep.
1: call there, Willard.
2: Yep. So, uh, but but about a month after getting that DUI was when the mindset shifted that the shift did happen. Okay. You know, it was, it was, I was, I knew I was facing going back to jail and, and again, just to put more comedy into this, got the 60 DUI was sober for a month. Knew I was going to court on a Tuesday. I got mm-hmm. all these dates memorized. It was Tuesday, August 22nd. Okay. So the Thursday before I'm like, you know what? I'm going to be going back to jail for God knows how long I'm going to go out and get drunk one last time.
1: Sure. Makes perfect and sense. I
2: <laughs> and, I <did. laughs> and i did and i woke up in a parking lot behind mm-hmm. the wheel of my car not knowing how i got there and that was the wake up moment that was the that was the it had been a stacking of a whole lot of things sure. that had happened with the jail and you know being sent to AA meetings and all that stuff but that morning was when the when the true transformation and the commitment to transforming started
1: so, we're, you know, I have a feeling we're going to have some good conversations here about transformation. So was that a fear? Like, did you wake up scared? Like, where the fuck am I? What happened? Was there a fear that involved me? Because, you know, when you're that age, you kind of don't have fear just out of ignorance of the reality of situations, right? So sometimes something big, bad happens. You're kind of like, I made it through it. No big deal. Even though your internal real self is traumatized, <laughs> the ego or whatever just flosses over it, right? Um, yeah. so, but was it, was it a fear-based thing? Kind of, but possibly not the way you're thinking
2: the fear was. So first, let me, let me, you know, again, I'm trying not trying to make myself better or worse than what I was. Right. I was a blackout drinker. Okay. I, I was drinking to get myself to a point where my brain would shut off okay. because growing up in the religion that I grew up in, I wanted to die at that point in my life. I really, really did. But I still had that little slim uh, belief of going, if I kill myself, if there is a hell, I'm going to burn, burn in it for eternity. Right. So blackouts were the place where I would be able to get away from me. You know, I mean, okay. so I was drinking at my at my highest point, air quotes, of right. drinking. I was drinking two cases of beer, a half a bottle of tequila. And taking 2,500 milligrams of, of, we called it speed, but it was diet pills, caffeine, you know, that's, that's, or whatever. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: That was my daily, that was my daily consumption. So I was used to not only blacking out, but I was used to blacking out and driving because there was a point where I was, I was living in Southern New Jersey, Mm -hmm. but I was doing work selling jewelry in the clubs up around Philadelphia. Well, by 7 p.m., I was blitzed. Wow. I was blacked out. Right. I would learn the next day that I was talking to people at midnight, 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and somehow I ended up back at
1: home. Right.
2: Passed out on the floor in the morning. Sure. But I, it was an hour and a 15-minute drive, and wow. I would drive in a blackout all that time. That's insane. So that was that was insanity. Yeah. Absolutely. Totally. But that morning when I woke up, the fear that hit me. Two things happened. Number one, I, without realizing that I was taking responsibility, I took responsibility for the first time that morning. Okay. Everybody around me, which by that point I had destroyed so many friendships, there weren't a lot of people left around me. But everybody would do go dude why are you doing this you're you're nuts you're killing yourself you're hurting our friendship you're doing these things but i wouldn't hear it because i was in the middle of the addiction got it when i woke up that morning this is how you know like like you mentioned in in talking about our introduction just a just a a conversation can shift the direction in, in your life right well that morning when i woke up i said you know what I don't drink and use drugs because I have problems. I have problems because I drink and use drugs. Okay. And making that shift and, and me saying it rather than other people telling me was the first step in me taking responsibility. Now the fear part that came in Mm -hmm. was again, because I was a blackout drinker and I drove all the time. I was used to, coming out of my apartment in the morning and walking around the car to see if there were dense blood, anything else. <laughs> oh on my it. God. That's horrible. With The idea in my head, thinking about hitting a deer or an animal, not never thinking about, I could have hit a pedestrian. Right. That morning when I woke up, I'm like, okay, so I wanted to die and I can tell you of a couple of situations. I put myself in hoping I would be taken out, but I still had a respect for other human life. Okay. And the fear that came that morning was one of these days I'm going to wake up and I will have killed somebody either in drunk driving accident, sure. in a bar fight, in something. Right. And I'll have to wake up every day for the rest of my life in a jail cell, knowing that I destroyed somebody else's family, somebody else's dreams, somebody wow. else's, all that stuff. Yeah. That was the fear. And that was the fear that kept me sober for the first year was I was scared if I picked up a drink, somebody was going to die. Wow. So that was the fear.
1: And so now you've been sober for how long?
2: Uh, August 17th 17th of last year was 33 years.
1: Wow. Well, congratulations uh, on your sobriety. That's amazing. Um, Let's skip ahead a little bit here. So uh, you're in the strip club industry till when roughly like as a DJ or manager or whatever
2: started uh in 1992 it was mm-hmm. when i started and i i left flash dancers why do i know all these freaking dates freaks me out november, <laughs> november 5th of 2011
1: okay oh wow okay i didn't know you it was that recent okay yeah. um real quick music question what were your who were your favorite uh artists to spin like well yeah when you're djing anyone that de- any like two or three tracks that You were like, okay, this is gonna rock the house.
2: Um, that's that's a tough one to think of right now. Um,
1: I know, took you out, took it out of the focus we were in, but
2: well, I mean, one of the one, I mean, it wasn't, I think, a popular song, Mm -hmm. but one that I loved because it just had a groove that, if the girls knew that song, Mm -hmm. it just was like you said, it was the central thing to it. Is Love Rears It's Ugly Head by Living Color?
1: Ah, oh, oh, I get goosebumps first. So, if you don't know me, some of you do, some you don't. It's my favorite band of all time. Love that song. Corey Glover is a vocal god. Just gotta say, Corey Vernon, if you're listening, love you guys. (laughs) (laughs) If you don't know the song, it's on Time's Up. Go listen to it. Love Rears It's Ugly Head. Okay, sorry. It's got an
2: awesome groove, you know, so good. for some reason, again, I believe that if the, the 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 customers didn't know the song, still the groove got them into it. Yeah. And if you had a girl who was dancing to it who knew the song and knew when to hit the beats, yeah, yeah, it was, it was that was one of my
3: favorites.
1: I, I applaud you. You have excellent taste, sir. <laughs> well, thank you. Sir. Thank yeah, you very yeah, much. Yes. yes. Okay, uh, we'll go back to some more music later. But um, what, what? So you transitioned um out of the strip clubs what was sort of your first what what did you, did you have a direction planned or did you just kind of let life take you where it was going to go
2: so um transitioning out of the clubs i joke with people and say you know getting into what i do now happened by accident even though i don't believe in accidents i believe that everything happens for a reason and all Agreed. those things so a little convoluted part of the story here so i was still pursuing my career as a musician while i was working in flash dancers okay and flash dancers really was financing the recording of my album it also was financing uh i decided if i'm gonna if i'm gonna invest in recording my own cd whatever you want to call it at that time i'm like i want to find at that do you remember rich simbora's stranger in this town album yeah of course Mm -hmm. okay i loved his vocal performance on that album yeah, just the way he could go from balls to the wall hardcore emotion to soft, subtle pull you in emotion within two lines was was just like holy shit! How's this guy doing this? Yes. So I scanned those liner notes and I I saw that his vocal coach was Katie Agresta, uh-huh. and I'm like, all right, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna commit to doing this CD, this is what I've always done. If I'm going to do something, I'm gonna jump in the deep end of the pool. I'm gonna immerse myself. I'm like, so if I'm going to do the CD. The, the leverage I'm going to put on myself is I'm going to go and hire the best vocal coach in the world, in my opinion, Sure. because I have to play at a higher standard if I'm working with her. Absolutely. So and I know this is a bit convoluted on so getting to, to your answer. Oh, you're fine. Studying with Katie, we became friends and she became a tremendous mentor. Okay. And this was around 1996, I believe. Okay. 96 or 90. 90 yeah, it was 96 going into 97. And... I was living the dream, man. I was making six figures, never dreamed of, you know, coming where I came from, sure. working, you know, that type of stuff. I was I was DJing in one of the top clubs in New York City. I was working on my life's dream, recording an album. And if I wasn't at the club or I wasn't in the studio, I was laying in bed depressed. Wow. And and I, I went to Katie for a lesson one day and I'm like, I just I have no idea what's going on. I should be living the dream right now, but I'm still messed up. And she goes, you know, I just ordered the the these CDs over here. Just got them. Just ordered them off of, a, of an infomercial. And I think you should do it too. I think you should get them. And it was Tony Robbins' personal power.
1: Okay, Tony's and, great.
2: Yeah. And I ordered them. I ended up taking her to a one day event that he wasn't at, but it was one of his business partners put on in New Jersey. Okay. And uh, from there, ended up signing up for a longer weekend course. All of this building up to the point that when we went to the weekend course, Mm -hmm. the people were sitting around me because I had already put eight years into working on my sobriety and understanding my mindset. People around me were coming to me to ask me to help them understand what was being taught. Okay. The staff recognized that I was actually giving people correct advice. And they ended up offering me a job as a coach. Okay. But I'm making six figures, you know, working in a nightclub. I'm like, yeah, I'm not jumping ship from here <laughs> to there. Right. You know, it's a, no, not going to do it. Right. But as fate would happen, this was right around the time that Rudy Giuliani was trying to shut down all the clubs in New York city and did the zoning law things. Right. My income dropped by about 50%. oof, Because, you know, there was constantly can't excuse me, constantly camera crews outside of the clubs filming for the six right. o'clock news, and customers are like, "I'm not going in." No, right. So that opened up the opportunity where I said, "Okay, I will work for Robbins part time and still DJ to bring the income back up to where it was." That's how I got into the personal development world. So okay. while I continued working in the clubs, that financed my studying of business, marketing, um, you know, personal development, all these different types of certifications and courses I took. So I was building actually three careers at the same time, DJ, music, and peak performance coach. All of them were moving forward at the same time.
1: You know, it's fun. I can't think of a better, th- all those better industries uh, of people who need uh, this sort of transformational work. That you're doing so like if you look at musicians you know they have this big dream and record labels and record deals are really skewed in the favor of the record labels right you're basically getting a loan so even if you get a million dollar deal you got to pay that back recouped on record sales or streams and now streams a million streams equals a thousand dollars so good luck how many people even hit a million streams right and so you know i and then you look at the strip club industry you know nightclub bartenders waitresses vip hosts djs uh, the dancers you know it's cash a lot of it and they usually come from a not as edu- uh um, financially educated background and right. so they're probably pretty bad with their money and uh again these are it's the perfect stuff for people in our lifestyle and, and and musicians um in my experience so far as a music promoter when I talk to artists I'm always like hey you know think about your financial side of things. And don't just sign a record deal because it's attached to a big label. Know your value and, you know, make sure you rate for the right deal, you know, because at the end of the day, it is a business and you, you don't do yourself a disservice and not learn the business before you get into it. You have to know something about it or you'll get used. And so stepping out of that, it's also true for your own personal finances. You can't really do well for yourself unless you understand the game, right? 100%. Uh whether it be credit cards or just minor investments or how to save money and pay your bills and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, I know a couple of years ago you uh were one of the speakers on a big panel, uh well, several times now. First of all, for pandemonium. So we had you do it uh for panda DJs in mm-hmm. Austin, Texas in 2015, I believe. And then you did it at the Adult Nightclub Expo several times over the last couple of years. Um, you know, your book uh the anatomy of transformation isn't specific to finances but it, the mindset also leads right into that so let's talk a little bit about um I, I where do you want to start do you want to start with the the two programs you came up with back in expo 2022 or do you want to touch upon the anatomy of transformation
2: we get, we can go for either i mean you're making you're 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 bringing up a lot of points that we could we could dive into um you know my my belief around Around our educational system, let's say, to 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 head down this rabbit hole a bit, mm-hmm. is negligent in teaching people two of the main things that they need to learn about. Mm-hmm. We do not learn about financial intelligence in school, and we do not learn about emotional intelligence in school. Right. You know, so so those two areas of interest, area of study, whatever you want to call them, those are the most important things in life, in my opinion. Yeah. Because if you don't understand emotional intelligence, meaning understanding how that, that your emotions are not your reaction, well, they are your reactions to things that are going on, but you have control ultimately over what you feel, what you think. That impacts your communication with your family. That impacts your your ability to work. That impacts, you know, everything in your social circle, learning to be able to respond to a situation rather than react. Yes. And we're not taught that. We're not taught fundamental emotional things in, in, in school. Like, you know, it's not what happens to you. It's the meaning that you attach to what happens to you right because there are so many different perspectives and you only have yours when that experience happens
1: for sure step
2: back and look at the other possibilities what else could this mean how else could this be you know what else could be going on but you know we got road rage we got people bringing guns into schools and and killing kids because they haven't been taught how to deal with the anger the frustration the all those different things that come up so that And then the financial intelligence, I don't know about currently in school, but I know when I was in high school, the only things we learned about financial, I'm not even going to put intelligence, the only financial (laughs) things, how to balance a checkbook. Mm -hmm. And then it was actually an elective class. It wasn't even in general classes, an elective class where they gave us the Wall Street Journal, Mm -hmm. pointed us at the stock section and said, okay. We're giving you an imaginary X amount of money. I don't know how much it was. Pick some stocks, and then you're going to watch them for a month to see what
1: happens. (laughs) Gee, thanks. (laughs) That
2: was the end of the financial education.
1: (laughs) I, I vaguely remember in that, maybe it was even just home ec, just learning how to fill out a check to write a check. And they talked about balancing it. But, you know, so an interesting combination of the two is the other thing a lot of people don't realize is the emotional response or feelings you have that drives your financial decisions so you know it it could or even not even financial it could even be you know overeating or you know when you deal with your stress you're unhappy you're depressed or you go shopping because you're depressed that instant satisfaction makes you feel good but meanwhile you're killing your money right so again like you said there's there's two different paths here um and you know and what's great about this this applies to everybody this isn't strip club people this isn't uh, uh music people this is anyone who's listening to the show, you know what I mean? Uh, If you can learn to not to stop your initial emotional reaction, pause it and go, Oh, I'm upset. I'm angry. I'm hurt. I'm mad. And stop and go, well, why? What did this person say? Yeah. Oh, they said that. And then make it mean something else, you know, but it takes a lot of time and practice to learn these skills and learn this inner new inner dialogue you have with yourself to control your emotional responses. Yep. that's just the first level of it because then you start looking at your own traumas and blah, 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 which leads to your financial decisions and emotional relationship decisions and how you react and how you spend your money. So we're not going to go down all those paths. Uh, <laughs> I do want to talk about um, more of the, uh, the, the money stuff. You made some huge difference. I know at pandemonium, there were several guys in particular who absolutely changed their lives just from your little four bucket thing. I don't know if we're going to get into that today, but um just a little, 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 uh, plan for how to manage your money on a very fundamental basic level. And these guys were able to be really rigorous, have great discipline, save up great money, start businesses and totally change their lives and have become very successful. And that was only in 2015. So we're talking eight years later, they're doing phenomenal, phenomenal. Um, and you know, the other facet to this in the strip club industry is a lot of people, yeah, they'll, they'll listen to it and, and hear it um, on an intellectual level, and maybe say they want to do it. But like you said, is there emotional other stuff that prevents them from actually putting it into action as far as the money stuff? So, so let's start with, I guess, the what do you call it, Master Your Money game thing. You talk about game that, yeah.
2: What What would you like me to start with oh, on
1: that? Uh, I guess uh, just for people, just to give a little synopsis, and then you know. Sure.
2: So first and foremost, I you know, I have to do the disclaimer. I am not a financial advisor. This is, you know, so I, th- this is anything that I'm telling you, if you want to take a deeper dive in it, I can give you some of the fundamentals. And even when we get deeper into the fundamentals, there are several points where I would tell you, you need to speak to a tax attorney. You need to speak to an accountant because I am not a financial advisor. Got it.
1: These Nor am I. The- I'm not either. I'm not a psychologist. Uh, <laughs> I, I I know my opinion. I know what I like and I know what's worked for me. That's it. Okay. Sorry. Continue.
2: So, so these, these seven fundamental strategies are things that I've used. Other people have used. And when you start learning about finance, they're, they're, they're the foundation of it. First one is you have to know your numbers. You have to know what you make, what you spend and what you're keeping. Makes sense. So, I I tell people all the time, look, if you really want to get serious about creating a financial future for yourself, you need to really look at your life and take away the extemporaneous spending that you do on things and ask yourself the question, like a business person, what is my break even? Meaning to keep a roof over my head, food in my stomach, my car insured, my car paid for, what are the fundamentals that I must pay every month? and break those out, get that number. Then you look at what you keep and you look at that gap in between.
3: Okay.
2: Well, that gap in between is where most people have never identified what their break even is. So they just spend everything that they're making because as, as you alluded to, they're doing it to change the way they feel. I'll come back to that emotional and, and, and feeling spending type of thing in a minute. When you know your break even and you know the gap of what you're making above that, hopefully, mm-hmm. a lot of people don't even make their break even and they're struggling. Right. right. But when you're making more than your break even, the second fundamental is use a bucket system. I recommend a minimum of four buckets um, savings, investing, um, play money, and one thing that I also believe uh, a lot in is we refer to it as tithing, but I, you know, charity. You know what? What are you going to do to support other people and those types of things? Personally, I have like eleven buckets that, wow. my, <laughs> that my goes into. Well, I look at it this way: I would rather have a bucket that I've been putting money in and saving up for Christmas gifts, rather than when Christmas comes scrambling and going, "Oh shit, I got to." Max out what? my credit cards to buy. That's credit what credit cards, cards are for, Willard. <laughs>
1: exactly. exactly. I pay that twenty five percent interest. What the hell? It's just interest.
2: Or if there's car repairs, or you know, I mean, I, I travel around the country full time in an RV. If there's RV repairs or car repairs, I would rather have been setting aside for that in sure. one of my buckets than get into emergency mode. All right. so, so again, you went from minimum, beer
1: buckets to money buckets. I like it. There you
2: go. So <laughs> four buckets minimum. Okay. Six, Savings is for your emergencies. You know the 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 rule of thumb that most financial teachers teach is: you want to have six months worth of savings, meaning that your break even would be covered for six months. In case God forbid you had an injury, you lost your job, you would not be homeless. You would have six months. And you know what the reality is: pre COVID. The, the the studies had said that if a person had an emergency and they needed a thousand dollars the majority of the united states public they would have to sell something or borrow money to come up with that thousand dollars to do it that's crazy during covid that went from a thousand dollar emergency to a four hundred dollar wow. emergency that people don't even have that much money wow. in in those situations so, these little buckets are are important for protecting you and your family moving forward. We have investing. been
1: groomed to be consumers, ladies and gentlemen. Believe that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not savers, consumers. Okay, sorry.
2: Absolutely. The investing bucket, people go, well, I don't know how to invest. That's okay. Learn. The investment bucket is about going, I've already worked to earn this money. Now I'm going to put this money to work for me. Sure. So it will create more money. Um playtime.
1: Yeah.
2: What's that? Playtime bucket. Playtime bucket. Everybody's yeah. favorite. <laughs> exactly. It's like people when I first talked to them like, oh, I'm not gonna be able to have fun. No, you do. You just plan for it. it and bring it down, right, you know, right, to right. where you're not spending everything you make on your your recreation. Right. And again, I'm I'm a big believer that in life, if you want more of anything, if you want love, you gotta give love. If yeah. you want compassion, you got to give passion. Yeah. Compassion. Well, this is kind of like my belief, a universal law. Anything I want more of, I need to give that as well.
3: Okay.
2: So I set aside money for charity and tithing that, you know, every month that money that's been saved up goes to some cause that I believe in. Or it could even go, you know, some of it to a homeless person, right. but it's going. It's about shifting that mindset of going, oh, there's not enough to there's plenty out there. You know, it's like I just create this flow. I like that. Um, The third is about the emotional discipline. People don't realize that everything they buy from the breakfast they had this morning to the car they drive, the clothes they wear, the house they live in, everything that they spend a dollar on, they do to make them feel a certain way it's all emotionally driven and this comes back to that emotional intelligence if you don't realize that you're going out and you're buying that you know the 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 new electronics or the new clothes because you want a a, an emotional feel-good moment from it sure you're just going to be driven by your emotions and you're always going to be spending money that you don't need to spend
1: there's a reason why uh marketers uh do so much emotional work. They really learn how to manipulate your feelings your emotions. Commercials are definitely meant to trigger emotional responses from you. Positive, negative, emotional excitement, all the above to get you to buy their product. That's so, I mean, yep. it goes, believe that they are definitely trying to manipulate your feelings to get you to spend money on their products.
2: Yep. So that third fundamental principle is about recognizing, first off, a lot of people don't even know what their emotions are. Right. They're so, we haven't been taught, again, to to look at them. Check this out and do this as an experiment. You know, ask somebody how they feel about Mm -hmm. something. You know, what do you feel about the current state of politics in America? They won't give you an emotion. They'll give you a belief about something. They'll go, well, I think that it's a mess, that this and that and the other. I didn't ask right. you what you thought. I asked you, right. what do you feel? Right. And I don't understand. Do you feel right. anxious? Do you feel fearful? Do you feel happy? Do you? They, they don't even know how to identify the emotion. Wow, That's wild. So it's the, same, it's the same thing when we're looking at these things that are coming up for us. We don't realize that we're running out to buy that new watch because we need to feel important. We need to feel significant. It's like, all right, start learning those things and then recognize there are other ways that you can feel important and significant that don't damage your financial situation. But most of us will go in debt to feel a certain way that we believe we need to feel. The uh, the fourth fundamental is getting financial intelligence. You know, there is no excuse. There is no reason... Even though the schools do not teach financial intelligence with Amazon and every book that you can buy, with YouTube and every video that you can watch, with all the different seminars that are out there, the courses, all these different things, whether you want to do Dave Ramsey or Susie Orman or whatever the case may be, there is no reason for somebody who is moving into adulthood to now be financially unintelligent because all the resources are out there. It's about finding them and committing to learning that. And this is the thing again that you mentioned earlier. People don't realize if you don't take control of your finances, the rest of your life, am I allowed to swear here? Yeah, yeah. the rest of your life is fucked. If you don't- <laughs> it impacts your health mm-hmm. just from the stress alone, yep, not, not even going into that you can't make healthy choices when it comes to the food that you want to buy. Mm-hmm. You're buying a bunch of junk food because it's cheaper, rather than you know spending money on food that will lift your energy. Right. It's it's the cause of most divorces and most relationship challenges. Right. Sadly, I'm not saying that money is a god, but in the society that we live in, it is what allows you to establish a certain lifestyle and I don't identity. A luxury lifestyle. Yeah. I'm sorry
1: an identity for a lot of people. An
2: identity, yeah. yeah. So, financial intelligence, you know, it's that foundation that you need to learn and there's no excuse not to. Like I said, there's books, there's articles, there's videos, there's Right.
1: Oh, there's, there's so much there's so much knowledge out there for you to and you know, the internet makes it even easier.
2: Yep, 100%. The fifth uh fundamental, mm-hmm. and this is not for everybody, but for those who are working in the strip club industry, especially entertainers, DJs, barbacks, Mm -hmm. if you're working as an independent contractor, Mm -hmm. you need to establish yourself as a legal business entity. Right. You need to set yourself up. And again, this is where you need to talk to your tax attorney, you know, and your accountant, because they'll tell you what the best entity to set yourself up will be for you based on, you know, your... Married or not married, children or not having children, what county you live in, what state you live in, they'll tell you what's best for you. But there are so many advantages. Again, going back to the first principle of knowing your numbers, what you make, what you spend, what you keep. If you just are an employee of somewhere, Mm -hmm. and actually there's a lot of people that don't even want to to pay taxes because of the money that's coming in cash. And I tell people, if you ever want to buy a house, if you ever want to do any of these things. You have to, to show up on those things. Right. Do it by creating a business entity. Right. Because as an employee, you get taxed first, and then you do your deductions later, and the deductions you get are limited. Right. As a business entity, your deductions come first, and you're taxed later. Right. And without getting into a whole lot of stuff, you can go from being in a 30% tax bracket Again, the the example that I use is you know one hundred thousand dollars. Okay, if you're in a thirty percent tax bracket, that means thirty thousand of that one hundred thousand dollars goes to the government, right? And then you get to write off some of your deductions. But if you create yourself as a business entity, and and you really work with your accountant and your attorney on what you can write off, you may be able to write off twenty five thousand dollars in
1: deductions,
3: right?
2: You know for Clothing, travel, you
1: know, laptops, music, yeah,
2: laptops, music, yep. So now, right from going from a hundred thousand to seventy five thousand, you may have moved from a 30% tax bracket to a 25% ta- tax bracket, right? I'm just throwing out numbers here, yeah, again. yeah.
1: right. Talk Maybe. to your accounts, people. This isn't, yeah, but
2: yep. <laughs> so the idea is okay, well, now if you're paying 25% on seventy five hundred,
1: mm-hmm.
2: then you're you know rather than thirty thousand going to taxes, it's like seventeen thousand five hundred this point right,
1: right. totally makes sense.
2: It's more money that stays in your pocket
1: right. And then it allows you to buy houses, buy cars, have credit, uh, invest in things uh, because you've you've created yourself as a, a financial entity, yeah uh, a financial person in the world today. So look, cash money is great. And as an adult, at some point, you probably want a house, you probably want kids, you probably want a car, and you can't get those things. And look, even if you pay all in cash, red flags go up to the government anyways, okay. they're still going to find you. So it's a good idea to figure this out. I know you've got two more uh, yep. strategies, and then we'll go to a break. Okay, go ahead.
2: Yep. Next strategy is you need to create what I call the, the Master Your Money Game team. You need to get a tax attorney. You need to get mm-hmm. an account. You need to get what's called a fiduciary when you're doing your investing. A fiduciary is different than a broker, you know, when it comes to stocks or real estate or anything else. And there's a joke, but in every joke, there's that seed of truth. (laughs) that The reason they call a broker, a broker is because they're broker than you are.
1: (laughs) I haven't heard that one. That's good.
2: (laughs) The reality is they do not make their money from doing what their job is. Got so a, 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 an investment broker, they don't make their money from investing. They make their money from moving your money. Mm. Every time they move your money from one investment to another investment, they get a commission on it. Got that's it. not your best interest. No. <laughs> Fiduciary legally, that's a flat fee that you're paying them mm. and they have to be working in your best interest. Got it. So you have to, this comes back to the financial intelligence. I didn't know about fiduciaries. I didn't know that
1: either. That's, Huge. I just learned that one today.
2: (laughs) I didn't know about fiduciaries until five, six years ago. Wow. Okay. I didn't know that that was was a thing. I'm like, oh, I thought they were
1: synonyms. Yeah, I thought they were synonyms.
2: (laughs) So, uh, you know, what did I say? Uh, Tax attorney, accountant, fiduciary, banker. You know, you want to get to to have a friendship with your banker. Right. Your money game teams that people are going to help you succeed. And then the final one is compounding interests. Understanding the power of compounding interest again something we were never taught in school right short view of it is that when you understand compounding interest warren buffett is one says the reason i'm successful today is because i live in the united states a little bit of luck and understanding compounding interest hmm. it's when you put your money to work for you i was gonna say that and you let it continue to work for you so you make your investment whether it's in real estate whether it's in stocks whether it's in a business and the money that it generates you don't go spend right you let it go back into let it grow principle that you have and it grows exponentially we didn't right. we did a thing uh at the at the panda uh, panel that you're talking about where we showed if you just invested once and you know did this, you would get over a, I think I did like a 36 month period right. just to show what it was. You would get like, you know, a, a $4,000, I'm sorry. No, it was a, I think it was a 30 year type of thing. Right. But as the one, your return on investment, if you didn't let it compound would be like forty eight fifty thousand dollars $50,000. Right. But if you let that same investment compound, yeah, it ended up being like a half a million dollars.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
2: You know, I mean, it's like people just don't understand the power. So those, those are the seven foundational pieces of Master Your Money
1: Game. I thank you for that basic. Those were basic financial knowledge, really, that a lot of people don't have. And uh, yeah. I thank you for that. We're going to go to a break here real quick. Uh, we'll have more with Willard Barth right after this. We are back with Willard Barth. Uh, You're listening to Behind the Curtain, a What's Hot in the Strip Clubs podcast on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Uh, You can find us on all major streaming platforms and, of course, at our website, www.whatshotitsc.com. All right, we're back with Willard Barth. He is a uh, coaching consultant uh, doing peak performance coaching and business advising. So we were just talking about his uh, basic core financial principles that everyone should learn and uh we'll we'll let you know how you can contact him and and, uh, gain some of this knowledge and stuff but i wanted to talk about another cool thing more uh for nightclubs and it this applies more this applies to management and leadership stuff i know you're doing a thing on um maximizing your employees potential and team training motivation that sort of thing and look even if you're not a manager, if you're an employee, this is good for you. This can be good for you too. Cause at the end of the day, you want to prove yourself to be a valuable employee. So how can you maximize yep. yourself? Now just I guess tease it a little bit and then uh sure. we got some fun stuff. I want to talk to you about music too. So uh cool. go ahead.
2: The the teaser on it is uh this most recent expo. Um Dave Manick reached out to me and he goes, Look, I want I I would love to have you do something on training and motivation because that seems to be an area where clubs struggle the most uh we're not struggling most but they they have an issue with and so i put together uh, a training that basically had three components in it so number one is if you're going to train somebody first thing that you have to have is you have to have a documented process on what it is that you want them to learn the you know the reason i say a documented process is because you've got Day shift and night shift. you got different team members working on each of those shifts. So you may have five different people that are in charge of onboarding. You know, bringing in a new person, whether it's an entertainer, a bartender, a floor person, a bouncer. And if you don't have a documented process, there's not going to be any consistency in training. Right. You know, the owner's going to walk in one day and go, "What the hell are you doing?" Well, that's <laughs> what Bobby taught me to do. Right. Bobby didn't. Bobby didn't have anything that that did it. Bobby. Bobby just did it the way he does it, but it's right. not the company way. And when I say the company way, I mean it's not the most efficient and effective way. Right. So you need to document the processes. Going, if we're going to have us doing this at our best, here's the steps that need to be followed. So I can train somebody on doing it. The next thing is the the second component is learning how to actually train people. Because most most people I've met, if they have not been formally taught how to be a trainer, you know, they 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 basically go, okay, come follow me around. All right, now go do this. You know, it's right, right, right. It's like you better pick everything up, and if you don't, it's your fault, not mine. Horrible. And and I talk about a storm acronym, S T O R M. Okay. First, you show them. Mm-hmm. Then you do it together then you observe them, then you review what any of the the uh, improvements that they can make. Then you make those adjustments, and then you go back through it again. Now that we made the adjustments, let me show you again. Let's do it together. All right, now I'm going to observe you. And here's what most people don't understand. The first time that you train people, they're only going to reach maybe 15% of their potential of doing it because it's brand new for them. Absolutely. They're trying to take in all this stuff. The second time, and I don't mean, you know, like in that same day, this is where you need to, the the third part of this is regularly revisiting that training and and helping them improve. So the first time that you you do it, they're only going to get about 15% of it. Then with them being a new person, you're going to come back in two weeks. You should come back in two weeks. This should be scheduled out and you're going to retrain them again, or at least observe them and then modify any of the things that need to be modified. Well, then they're going to go from 15% competency to maybe 25% competency. Then you go, okay, I'm going to give them, uh, you know, we did that at two weeks. I'm going to give them 60 days and then they'll come and do another review. You know? and then you help modify again well then they go from 25% competency to 40% competency the only way that you can really train and get your staff doing things the way that you want to do them is by having something documented that everybody's on the same page yeah so they're not being told one thing by one person another thing by another then doing it in the storm method show do it together observe refine and then you know make the modifications mm-hmm. and then Not only regularly revisiting it, but understanding that you have to be, I'm going to say most people who are training, unless they've gone through something to learn how to be a trainer, they're not really good at giving feedback.
1: Right. Yeah. They they, don't even know what they don't know. They They don't know what question to ask. Not to mention the emotional, again, going back to emotions, of... I'm not confident. I'm outside my comfort zone because I don't know what I'm doing in this job. I don't have no bond or relationship or connection with you to trust and fear of rejection. There's so much stuff that goes on. So anyways, sorry. <laughs> yeah.
3: well, and, and
2: And there's the thing where, okay, how many times have you observed where a server makes a mistake, a DJ makes a mistake? And the first thing you hear is, what in the fuck are you doing? Right. I've already yeah. gone over this with you 30 freaking times. How right. how do you not get this?
1: Most people shut down at that point. <laughs>
2: exactly. So there is a, there is an, an an elegant way to be able to give feedback to somebody. And that is it, it came from a, a gentleman who wrote a book called the The One Minute Manager. His name's okay. Ken Blanchard. And it's the 3 B's. Build, burn, build. Hmm. Meaning you build the person up first. Okay. Hey, Alon, you know what? I really appreciate the initiative you took in doing X. Okay. Burn. Now, the burn, you burn the action, never the person. Okay. Here, here's the challenge, though. When you did X, here's the things that you may not have even been aware of that were the ripple effects that came out from this. And while you're in that burn section, you go, now, Alon, what do you think could be done better next time? getting the person to give you their input. Then you as the manager can either go, yep, you got it. Let's move on. Or you can go, that's awesome. And here are a couple of other things that you need to, to focus on. Got it. And you return to the build by going, look, Elon, I really appreciate. Again, the intention was great. I know you're a sharp person. I know that the, the mistake that was made was not intentional. And I have every confidence that since we've had this conversation that you're going to do awesome. Build, burn, build. So that is really the, the the bringing together of training. Awesome. Has to be systematic, and motivation is recognizing as a human being, and you have to make sure that they're open to hear
1: the feedback that you're giving. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm taking notes myself here. <laughs> I always <laughs> learn when I'm talking to Willard Barth. That's why I love talking to Willard. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I'm going to call you Yoda from now on. Tim Tim Rhodes
2: uh, just made me laugh. He posted on Facebook after I stopped in and visited him one time because I always love when Willard stops by, but when he's done, I've always got a headache because he makes me think so much. So
1: well, uh, Tim's a simple guy. His brain overloads easily. You know, it's okay. He's a great guy, but you know, he gets headaches. When you make him think too much, he doesn't like to think he's very pretty. So he has that.
0: Uh love you, Tim.
1: Um, let's see here. So we are at storm. We just talked about that. You talked about learning how to train. What's the third part of, uh,
2: well, that was, the, that was, that was the third.
1: Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, you're right. I'm, I that was a lost, lost my own process where it was. All right. Well, hey, look, if you want to find out more, he's an easy man to get a hold of. And uh, talk to them about your website, socials, how to get a hold of you type thing.
2: Sure. Um, so website, willardbarth.com mm-hmm. um, I'm guessing that will be in, the, in the, the comment section here or something. But uh, I like to spell it for people just in case because there's not a lot of whole people named Willard. It's W-I-L-L-A-R-D as in David, B is in boy, A-R-T is in Tom, H. And you okay. can find me on all of my socials that way uh, as well. Facebook, Insta, um, Twitter, though I don't really use Twitter. Um, okay. All that type of stuff. And then also, if people want to get more information on the Master Your Money Game uh, or the uh, the Maximizing employee potential, based on the uh, presentations we did at Expo, Mm -hmm. there's you can go to mymgreplay.com, which is Mm -hmm. Master Your Money Game abbreviation mymgreplay.com, so to to learn more about those seven fundamentals, or if you're a manager or an owner who wants to learn more about training and motivation, you can go to mepreplay.com for maximizing employee potential.
1: Very cool. Very cool. All right. Well, it is time to have some fun. You ready to have some fun? Right. That Let's, was fun too. Me, I like learning. So we're yeah, uh, some personal questions about music. Uh, we're okay. primarily a music show, but I thought this is too important to not pass on to our listeners all the money education and uh leadership stuff. So what who what artist really kicked off your love for music? As a child, what was the first time there was a ding like? Oh, that's what I want to do. Like for me, it was Van Halen. When I heard Van Halen in 1978, I heard Running With The Devil and then I heard Eruption. And then, you know, between Ross vocals and whatever the hell Eddie Van Halen did, my mind was blown.
3: Yeah.
2: So um, interesting. The the one that kicked it off for me, nobody on this podcast would have ever heard. <laughs> um, I I grew up in, in a very rural part of Pennsylvania where the music that we listened to was gospel and country. Okay. And I actually started singing solos in my community's church when I was okay. six years old. Wow! When I was about fourteen years old, there was a local cover band that did an assembly at oh, wow. our high school,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and that was the thing that went. That's what I want to do uh, because I saw these guys again. They were playing all the all the hits from you know the the late seventies, early eighties type of thing. Uh-huh. It was just the energy of those guys on stage and the way that the audience was responding. Yeah, I get that it. I'm like, okay, that's what my future is going to be. Dude, so I, it wasn't so much a famous band, it was that live concert.
1: I, I agree with you that uh, there. I uh, I was a singer in a band too for many years, and it wasn't. And I, I remember when I auditioned for the band, this band came into the pizza shop I was working at at Ohio State. Never sung in my life, really. I was always good at impressions, but I was yeah. never a singer. And they were three long-haired guys walked in. I'm like, you guys must be in a band. are like, yeah. And we're talking, and like, I'm like, well, who do you sound like? What do you like? And They're like, oh, Van Halen. I'm like, I love Van Halen. <laughs> and they're like, and I had just started growing my hair, so I kind of had the mullet, long hairish thing. And they go, well, are you a singer? And I'm like, yeah. They're like, well, we're looking for a singer. And like, would you want to audition? I'm like, sure. <laughs> and I got the gig. So. <laughs> And then being on stage, but that was it. So I'd, I'd come into Ohio State as an acting major. So I wanted to be an actor. But then once I hit the stage and got that immediate response from the audience on in a rock band, it was over. <laughs> nope, anyway. There's something about being a live rock crowd when you're on stage. Oh, my God. It's the best feeling in the world.
3: Yeah.
1: Uh, any influences on you DJ wise or. Uh, yeah. Like what got you into DJing sort of like the actual DJ side of things, not strip clubs, but like.
2: So, like I mentioned earlier, the the first gig I had as a DJ was in this little club, no longer there, in mm-hmm. Long Branch, New Jersey. And uh, 25 bucks shift, no mini- no mandatory tip-out. And what got me into it was, within a couple of months, I had two other clubs coming at me going, Hey, we'll pay you twice as much and give you twice as many shifts. <laughs> I must have a talent at this. Right, right. And I started talking to more of the guys that were in that central Jersey region okay, and learning about the potential in like the New York clubs.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I was like, well, I'm, I'm in this right now. I was, I was funding, funding my, my music career mm-hmm. and my other businesses through, through the things that I was doing, not so much from the 25 bucks a night, but I'm like, if I want to do this, I'm not just going to piss around. I want to be the best. Yeah, of course. So I immersed myself in networking with other DJs, learning Mm -hmm. from other DJs. But the most influential DJ was the head DJ at Flash Dancers when I started there. Um, He had come from the the Miami market. Uh, Flash Dancers had hired him away. I don't know whether he was an MJP person or not. Mm -hmm. Um, He actually passed away. Couple of years after I started working at Flash Dancers, he oh, had bummer. skin cancer and and, okay. and and passed away. But that guy, I could what he took control of the room, and I didn't know this at the time. But later on, as I learned more about human behavior, neuro linguistics, you know, language mm-hmm. patterns, these types of things, he was actually using, and people are probably going to go no man that's not true he was using what we refer to in the business as trance inductions mm-hmm. to be able to get the crowd to do what he wanted them to do Got understanding it. how to use language the pacing of his voice with the music it basically puts people into a light trance not like right. you know chicken on stage but it makes them malleable to your right. influence
1: suggestible they're suggestive right
2: and he was phenomenal at that.
1: That's cool. That's cool. What oh, was the yeah. guy's name?
2: His name was Benjamin. I forget his last name at the uh,
1: moment. I'm curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if anybody out there in strip club land knows who he's talking about with love, we would probably both love to hear his last name. Benjamin yeah. from Flash Dancers, back in the late '80s, probably early '90s. Uh,
2: no, it was uh, early, early. Excuse me, mid to late '90s. I mid to late '90s. Okay. '95. Um, yeah. So it was, it was probably. Right.
1: So New York Pandas I'm counting on you guys. Uh, hit me John- up in the forum and then I'll I mean I'll connect you guys with Willard. Okay.
2: John Sharmanti will definitely know if he's listening to this. Ah, uh,
1: John Sharmanti, DJ Smiley. Come on brother, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh these are the fun questions. Uh these are my modified questions. One was modified as made famous by Ben Affleck Pivo and James Lipton on Inside the Actor's Studio. Willard Barth, are you ready yes, for 10 questions on uh, behind the I curtain? Am ready.
3: All prepared. right. Number 1
1: pressure's on man what right. is your favorite word my favorite word awesome awesome is your favorite word okay 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 what is your least favorite word
2: i don't have to think about least favorite word mm-hmm. disabled
1: disabled Huh. Ah, all right i like that all right what turns you on creatively spiritually or emotionally
2: what turns me on creatively, spiritually, and emotionally, all three of those come together, is I actually have this as a phrase of my why, is to unite with the source so that true potential is realized. Whenever, like this right now, the two of us having a conversation uh-huh. about tapping into what is a greater potential, and that source, whether you want to look at it as a spiritual thing, of God, creator, universe, whatever, you and I are uniting with that creative intelligence to have this conversation. So Got it. it turns me on as uniting with source to recognize true potential.
1: That's awesome. Mine would be in uh for similar transformational work I've done is who I am. We phrase it as who I am is joyous, expressive inspiration for all people. And that's who I am. So
3: nice. Yes. Okay.
1: Excellent. Uh, what turns you off? Willard Barth.
2: What turns me off is, uh, People who have no sensory acuity or concern for others around me.
1: Okay. That is a turnoff. I can see that. All right. Here's one of everyone's favorites. Willard Barth. What is your favorite curse word or phrase?
2: Fuck, of course. Fuck. (laughs) (laughs) It's the word that can be used as a noun, a verb, an adjective, an adverb. you throw it in anywhere. For fuck's sake. What the fuck are you talking about? Fucking stop doing this shit. (laughs)
1: i love fuck fuck's a good one uh what sound or noise do you love
2: sound or noise do i love the the the, my my granddaughter's laughter
1: oh that belly laugh of little kids is definitely up there on my list love that uh what sound or noise do you hate
2: sound or noise that i hate not a lot of things i hate that's why that makes it a little bit tough for me i (laughs) kind of accept things as where they are but but uh, a sound that annoys me, um, I would say, like, the, the steel grinder, you know, noise that, go, yeah, that <laughs> you, the way that we just did, yeah. it
1: makes you cringe, yeah, your teeth start rattling. you get that tingle in your jaw, yeah, I don't like Oh,
2: it. actually, I'm going to change it now, since you oh. mentioned teeth, that fucking dental scraping tool that they use,
3: <laughs>
2: that's the sound I fucking hate. Yeah, and it's I- inside
1: your head, oh, that's horrible.
3: Exactly, yep. <laughs>
1: Everyone listening is like, oh, God, I can't take it. All right. uh, Willard, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt?
2: Professional poker
1: player. Uh You'd be good. You have a good poker face, I have a feeling. You master the emotions, blank face. Or show an emotion that they think you're having, but then you take them on the cards. All right. Don't mind me. Uh, What profession would you not like to do?
2: Um. The guy, I saw this, I think it was on Dirty Jobs or something else. The guy <laughs> to go up those um, those wind farm oh, things. Yeah. Up to the top to do maintenance on them.
1: Oh, yeah, that looks terrifying. <laughs> All right, the big one. Ready? Okay. And this is where I modify the questions. All right. If heaven exists, when you step through the pearly gates, what musician or artist would you like to jam with?
2: Again, not one that, that a lot of people would know, but it's a friend of mine that I, oh. 28 years, uh, his name is Lou Paulo. He was Les Paul's rhythm guitar player. Wow. And, um, and uh, just an amazing human being. But yeah, it would be to jam with Lou again.
1: Wow, that's really cool. Willard Barth, you are off the clock of 10 questions on Behind the Curtain. <laughs> well, hey, man, I want to thank you for coming on. This is a lot of fun. Uh, we'll have to do it more. We'll talk more about the the uh what'd you say that the guy did in at the power suggestion? You had a term for what lingual, something lingual.
2: Oh, neurolinguistic programming. Yeah, uh, yeah.
1: We'll talk about that sometime. That's dope. You and I have had a conversation about that. I'm so you send it, i'm like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Uh but we'll have to talk about that some other time. Again, uh check out his book, The Anatomy of Transformation. Um, you can check that out at www. T-A-O-T, all caps, book.com. Uh, you can check him out at www.W-I-L-L-A-R-D as in dog, B as in boy, dot willardbarth.com Willard That's his social medias as well. Uh, great guy to talk to. I know he'll talk to you like he did for me back in 2014. Just make the request, hey, could I have a conversation with you? I'm sure he'll be more than happy to do that with you. One of my favorite people in the world, Willard Barth. Thanks for
0: being on the show, man.
2: Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's been an honor.